For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A 481-foot Australian destroyer, which is a class of warship designed to be fast and maneuverable in order to defend larger ships against attack, pulled into San Diego Harbor with not one, but two endangered fin whales attached to it, which is a limit of fin whales, in case you're interested. We'll get to that a little bit later. One of the fin whales was 65 feet in length and the other 25 feet, which should give you an idea of how much power these ships have. Not exactly like moving around the lake where you can feel every piece of water weed that gets hung up in your trolling motor, is it? Even still, I do find it hard to believe that this warship couldn't feel the drag and somehow dislodge these unfortunate whales at sea. The mental picture of pulling into port with these hangers-on somehow brings to mind the scene from the, dare I say, iconic National Lampoon's vacation with Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo when the highway patrolman pulls them over to notify them of the dog leash tied to the bumper. Poor fella probably tried to keep up for a while. Anyway, couldn't have been a proud moment at the dock. Fin whales are comprised of three subspecies that range in size as adults from 65 feet in length and 50 tons in the northern hemisphere to 75 feet in length and 70 tons in the southern hemisphere, which means that the Australian destroyer was dragging somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 tons of dead whale along with it. Fin whales are the second largest mammal on the planet behind the blue whale. Here is a quote from American naturalist Roy Chapman Andrews with his description. Pulled this from Wikipedia. The greyhound of the sea, 
for its beautiful, slender body is built like a racing yacht, and the animal can surpass the speed of the fastest ocean steamship. Unfortunately for the fin whales, not an ocean steamship, they had to outrun, but a modern destroyer. Speed does kill, but likely wasn't the whole story. Sonar has been linked in some cases to disrupting whales' ability to navigate. The Australian destroyer was taking part in joint naval operations at the time, meaning heavy traffic and heavy sonar use was happening. According to NOAA, of which the U.S. Navy is a permittee, commercial traffic has killed 31 whales in 2018, whereas the Navy only killed two. However, the Navy is at its bag limit for fin whales. I use bag limit because NOAA, as part of the permitting process, has outlined a maximum amount of marine mammal kills the Navy can chalk up in seven years of operating, and that list certainly resembles the regulations for someone going fishing or perhaps an upland bird hunter. This is from the Mercury News, with a little ad lib from me. In the current agreement with NOAA, the Navy can take, or has a bag limit, no more than three whales during a seven-year period, and no more than two from a certain species. The more a species population is endangered, the lower the limit. For example, fin whales are limited at two. Humpback whales living near Hawaii are limited at two. Gray whales are limited at two. Sperm and blue whales are limited at one each. Sound familiar? Currently, There is a debate as to which country has to accept the fin whales on whose whale kill quota. Do the Australians claim the whales on their bag limit? Or, since the Australians were taking part in a U.S. Navy operation, does the U.S. have to claim the two fin whales on their quota? Again, the similarities to a hunting or fishing trip argument are strong. This is like your buddy who got too overzealous on shooting golden eyes one day in the duck blind and wants to share at the end of the day. I half expect to see the next Associated Press report on this one with quotes from Australia saying, Look, U.S. Navy, you may have bought the gas when we stopped in Hawaii, but I bought the snacks, and they were good ones. Or the U.S. saying, Listen, Australia, if you didn't intend to take the fin whales home, why did you come on this maneuver in the first place? It's not our responsibility to have a spare 80-ton cooler for you to borrow. But, I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. No, man, there's no problem. It's cool. It's cool? Yeah, cool. This week, we've got the Crime Desk, Big Fish Roundup, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, as you know, is sponsored by Steel Power Equipment, maker of the world's finest chainsaws. I'm recording this from the way-too-sunny shoreline of New Jersey, a state I've seen prior to now only from the world-famous New Jersey Turnpike. I've been chasing stripers with Joe Cermelli, senior fishing editor at Meat Eater, and someone I have wanted to fish with for a long time. We started out throwing paddle-tail plastic shad in Raritan Bay, then putting circle hooks into Menhaden, or Bunka, and freelining them. Freelining is what it sounds like. No weight just a hook in a live bunka, and you send them on their way to, ideally for us, unfortunately for them, find a hungry striper. Circle hooks are a great tool for catching fish, unless you grew up with J-hooks like I did. J-hooks require a hook set, a swift jerk of the rod, typically in an upward motion, 
to set the hook in the fish's mouth. Circle hooks, however, are, as they sound, almost a circle and lack the wide gap of a J-hook. A hard setting motion will oftentimes only remove your hook from the fish's mouth. 30 plus years of setting the hook on fish does not get erased easily, my friends. The proper technique for hooking into a fish on a circle hook is typically either winding down on them, which is feeling the tug, and instead of lifting the rod tip swiftly, just reeling in line until the fish becomes taut, or allowing the fish to fully take a bait when they are at full gallop, which is a term seldom used for fish, I'll admit, you tighten the drag down on them, which will turn the hook into, you know, ideally the corner of the fish's mouth, and they will set themselves. Which kind of brings to mind the, I don't know if any delinquents ever watched some of those YouTube videos of like the bike set up in the bad neighborhood, and it's got like a chunk of monofilament on it, and thieves come up and steal the bike and try to ride away, and then the line comes taut and they go flying off the bike. That's kind of like that maneuver. Anyway. Poppers. I love throwing topwater poppers for anything that will eat them, and stripers are notorious for eating poppers. Surface eating is extremely entertaining, and it's not always happening. There's way more eating going on subsurface than on the surface, no matter what species you're after. In order to see how we did, you're going to have to check out the newest season of Das Boat. We're filming now. We'll keep you posted when it releases. It's going to be great. For those of you waiting, I will write up a bunch of facts on bluefish and stripers in the near future and how they're doing, but this week I already have way too much to talk about. So we're moving on to the Big Fish Roundup. Tim Baker, originally of LaGrange, Wisconsin, caught 15 different species to start off that state's fishing season. In three days, he had boated a muskie, the fish of 10,000 casts, and a surprise sturgeon. After that, the collecting was on. Northern pike, bowfin, walleye, pumpkin seed, bluegill, crappie, carp, bullhead, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, channel catfish, brown, and brook trout rounded out the list. I am willing to bet Tim never had so much fun focusing on bullhead or carp or even a pumpkin seed as he did this week. Well done, and a good reminder to the rest of us that variety is the spice of life. Sometimes, that singular species focus can limit the fun, not increase it. Next up, here in the home state of Montana, the largemouth bass record has been officially broken. The 22.5-inch, 9.575-pound bass beat the 12-year standing record of 8.8 pounds. Not just by weight, but by location, in my opinion anyway. The new record comes from the Billings City Pond of Lake Elmo a place we would occasionally go as kids to dunk worms or grasshoppers and swim in the overly warm, overly green water, never catching much. Thank you to the new record holder, Brandon Wright, for keeping the big fish dreams of youth anglers alive. Important to note that this was Brandon's first ever largemouth bass. Probably no need to fish for more, Brandon. He dunked a single worm after showing up at the break of 10 a.m., then set his lawn chair up and proceeded to watch TikTok videos until he felt a tug, which is one way to do it. For the sake of the Bass Masters tournaments, let's hope this technique doesn't become overly popular. According to Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, six new records have been entered since August of 2020, 
possibly due to the increase of participants and increase of overall fishing days related to quarantine times. Chinook salmon, yellow bullhead, brown trout, walleye, and smallmouth bass, long-nosed sucker are all new state records. Chinook stand at 32.05 pounds. Smallmouth, 7.84 pounds. Yellow bullhead, 15.5 inches, 1.91 pounds. Brown trout, 32.42 pounds. What's interesting about this list is the species that likely caught your attention, and admittedly mine, 32-pound brown trout, 32-pound chinook, almost an 8-pound smallmouth, almost that trophy bass Robert Earl Keane always sings about. Even the walleye I'm going to tell you about are considered non-native species in the state of Montana. I say considered because there are some folks that think it would have behooved the walleye to be called a native. The walleye cousin, the sauger, is considered a native species. The rub of the argument comes from the fact that the majority of the state of Montana falls within the potential native range of walleye, but all of the walleye data matches stocked or introduced walleye strains, and we have not found any walleye DNA, or more specifically walleye haplotypes, that stand out as anything different that would indicate a native species growing and evolving in Montana waters. As for the walleye record, that one, just this week, beats the 14-year-old record of 17.75 pounds that has stood since 2007. Reportedly, out of Holter Lake, just outside of the state capital of Helena, Montana, a 32.25-inch, 22 inches in girth, that's a tape around the belly, weighing in at 18.02 pounds, is your new flaky white, kind of tasteless state record. Of course, I'm picking on the diehard walleye anglers out there, because it's fun. Specifically, our own Seth Morris, aka the Flip-Flop Flesher, is a good example of these walleye types. We just spent two weeks in Hawaii playing in the salt water, and all I could talk about was the fact that walleye fishing is still for him. After this record catch, recorded so close to Meat Eater headquarters, it's safe to say old Seth may not leave the state ever again. Out of the same reservoir in the same week came another new record catch, this one of a long-nosed sucker. 19.5 inches, 4.21 pounds, beats the previous month-old record of 3.42 pounds. Don't let the name fool you, the long-nosed sucker is actually a really good-looking fish. Next up, New York State angler, 12-year-old Finnan Murphy, just won 15,000 for catching a 26-pound Chinook. Quick recap on those numbers, Finnan is 12, the fish is 26, and the prize is 15. Got it? Good. Every year, Finn and his dad and his friends participate in the Spring Lake Ontario County's Derby. Last year, Finn did not get a chance to reel in a fish, so this year he was at the front of the line, which is really great etiquette for a sport fishing situation. The official weight was 26 pounds, 10 ounces. Finn may buy a new Nerf gun, presents for his folks, and a new fishing pole for himself, which is pretty good. You know, if you're 12 years old and you got a freezer full of salmon and 15000 in your pocket. Wonder what that feels like. Next up, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service conducting fishing surveys for Lake Sturgeon on the Detroit River between St. Clair and Lake Erie caught a 240-pound, 6-foot, 10-inch, 4-foot-around Lake Sturgeon. In order to get that big, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service speculates that the fish has been swimming since at least 1920 in the Detroit River. 
which makes me think of what this bottom-feeding fish has consumed in her long lifetime. Detroit grew from a population of almost a million people in 1920, which again is the general time of the sturgeon's birth, to almost 2 million in 1950. These were the prime just dumping in the river years, which makes me think that this gal has an iron stomach. The largest lake sturgeon on record is 310 pounds, and there are an estimated 6,500 lake sturgeon swimming in the Detroit River. This giant female sturgeon was weighed, measured, tagged, and released, meaning your odds of catching this same 240-pound, taller-than-you, or most anyone you know, fish, is only 1 in 6,500, which, oddly enough, is considered your chance of dying in a car crash or from the flu. If you fancy yourself an angler, right now you're thinking, so you're telling me there's a chance. Next up. Chase Gibson out of West Virginia with a new state record muskie. Chase beat the 2017 muskie record of 53.5 inches, 34.5 pounds, with his 54-inch, 39.6-pound female out of Burnsville Reservoir. Biologist Aaron Yeager showed up to officially weigh the fish for Gibson and is equally happy with the catch, as it is a good marker of fishery restoration efforts in the area. He notes that it's possible that another angler could catch the released fish in the fall and set a new new state record. Well, let's hope for Gibson's sake that he can get a respectable amount of time on the leaderboard. Congrats to the fishery restoration and the big fish. That's it for the big fish roundup. We're moving on. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, 
Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. As you know, it's never a dull moment at the crime desk. A Montana man was charged with a violation of Montana Code Annotated 87-6-415, which is hunting without landowner permission, a misdemeanor crime. The hunter was also issued a warning for the same violation, hunting without landowner permission, as well as a warning for illegal possession of wildlife. And that hunter was me. If this is shocking news to you, welcome to the club. On October 17th of 2020, I screwed up in a way I just didn't think was possible. I shot a buck and doe antelope on what I thought was BLM ground, but was actually private ground belonging to a coal company. When I went to retrieve those antelope, I crossed a set of railroad tracks. Just to be clear about the situation, I was on BLM, attempting to shoot antelope on BLM, but what I did was shoot across the boundary onto the coal company property. I was met at my vehicle by a game warden who was on his way home for the night and shown the errors of my ways. My previous thoughts of having a cold beer while skinning antelope turned to thoughts of crawling into a hole and just dying real quick. The warning, hunting without landowner permission resulted from crossing railroad tracks and not at a railroad crossing. The railroad bed and right-of-way is private property no matter where it is located or you come across it. The only legal place to cross railroad tracks is at a railroad crossing. In rural America, this easement is often, but not always, where you can drive a vehicle across the railroad tracks. In this case, once I crossed the railroad tracks, I left BLM land and entered private land. No excuses. As I mentioned, I also received a warning for illegal possession of wildlife. I received this warning because once I grabbed the antelope and tagged them, I possessed them illegally because I did not have the landowner permission to hunt on the property. Had I realized I was on private land that I had just illegally hunted, I could have avoided this warning by calling the game warden before I touched the animals. The golden hunting rule is... Call the game warden as soon as you know you've made a mistake. Unfortunately, I didn't realize I'd made a mistake until the warden met me at my car, which was after I had the antelope in possession. Had I called him before touching the animals, I would have still incurred the charge of hunting without landowner permission, but avoided the warning for illegal possession of wildlife. Not that things would have been better for me, but I thought I would just explain that one to you. On top of all that... The game warden also informed me that I had not renewed my license plates on time, which I believe is the only time throughout this entire process that I laughed, not because any of this is funny, but because when you serve yourself a big poop sandwich, you may as well have seconds. 
that October 28th, I entered a guilty plea in open court for hunting without landowner permission. I asked for a deferred sentence, which means that with no further violations in six months, I could apply for a dismissal of the charges, which the judge granted. I was ordered to pay a fine of $135 plus court fees of $35 and the two antelope were confiscated. To be clear, the seizure of the antelope happened right away. I helped load them into the warden's truck. Shooting something and not utilizing it or having a say in how it is utilized by confiscation is, as it turns out, a similar feeling to shooting a bull and recovering it only when the meat is ruined. It does not feel good. Earlier this month, I sent in my petition and my guilty plea was withdrawn. The judgment was vacated, the charge itself was dismissed. This is the reason you have not heard this story until now. I wanted to close one chapter before opening another. The $170 in fines and fees is about what I would spend voluntarily on fuel in a long weekend of hunting. The loss of the meat is the more serious of the fines. To be clear, I hate that I screwed up. I hate that this happened. I even hate that all I can do is call it a mistake. There is nothing and no one to point to other than myself. This is definitely something that has helped me gain perspective on all the wildlife crime reported here on the Week in Review. I learn through mistakes more than anything. I make plenty and have learned lots. I hope by sharing this, I can help others avoid my mistakes. While I am by no means proud of this, I admit freely that up until this incident, I had a very laissez-faire attitude about railroad tracks. I grew up crossing them without concern. I learned to hunt in an area where, at the time, it felt like it was impossible to hunt without crossing the tracks, sans easement. But, looking back, I know that's not the case. The truth, you just can't hunt as easily or as efficiently without crossing them wherever you want, which is just another example of the hard way being the right way. Now, despite what I just said about rail company land, I have never had a give-no-shits or disrespectful attitude about private property. We have some ground in my family, and I have knocked on plenty of doors to get access to private ground in many states. With permission comes the responsibility of respecting the boundaries of that land, sometimes even policing it, and not screwing it up. This time, though, I did screw up which is why I decided on the side of the road back in October of last year to declare my guilt, take my just desserts, and talk about it here on the podcast. Quick side note, just desserts, spelled with one S, is a phrase I have used in the past, but looked up the definition of just now, and it means the punishment that one deserves. It's a struggle to find anything positive to come out of this situation, but if I can impart something, It's this. Watch your railroad tracks and right-of-ways. They're in the hunting regulations for a reason. No matter how long you hunt, you can still lose your situational awareness when you narrow down your field of view to focus on the meat. Had I shot on the right-hand side of the group of antelope versus the left-hand side, I would have had a buck and doe laid out on BLM ground, not private ground which in this case would have limited this list of screw-ups, not erased them. Finally, you won't have to worry about the boundary or property line if you don't hunt 
on the boundary or property line. I report on a lot of wildlife crime here on the Week in Review. Some odd, some funny, some sad, some very similar to my case. The hypocrisy here is not lost on me. It's humiliating. There's a temptation inside of me to just cover this up, to not be the one who breaks my own story about my own fallibility. But I feel that I owe something to you people. I mean, to you folks that trust me enough to listen to me week in and week out, and you folks that trust me enough to financially support this show. I owe you an honest take on who I am, and right here, today, who I am, is a guy that screwed up. So to all of you, I'm sorry. Moving on. 39-year-old Kevin McKenzie was arrested last month at JFK Airport with 35 chestnut-bellied seed finches nestled inside of hair curlers sewn into his clothes. Mackenzie was not attempting to start a new cuckoo clock hairdo craze. He was smuggling this particular kind of finch known in Guyana as the Tawatawa to supply the fiercely competitive bird singing contests in Queens, New York specifically in Phil Scooter Rizzuto Park in Richmond Hill, Queens, where on the weekends you'll see crowds of Guyanese men gathered around pairs of cloth-covered bird cages mounted on five-foot poles. The covers come off, the finches see each other, and because they're male, they will start singing their territorial mating call, trying to establish dominance. The Tawatawa is particularly prized because it has an extremely well-muscled syrinx, The syrinx is the junction of the two bronchial tubes that connect the bird's lungs and throat, and it controls the bursts of air that produce birdsong. While many bird species only have two muscle pairs at the syrinx, the Tawatawa has up to nine, so their distinctive and very loud zarit sound makes them truly amazing singers. So, back to the competition. Two referees will count the number of discrete zreets, and the first bird to 50 wins. Tawatawa finches become increasingly valuable the more they win, sometimes fetching up to eight grand for a top breeding male. Wild Tawatawa from Guyana are thought to be the best birds, and so smugglers like Mackenzie are caught every year in violation of the Lacey Act, which bans the import of and commerce in wildlife. U.S. Fish and Wildlife worries specifically about Guyanese finches spreading Newcastle disease, a virus that affects the avian nervous system and can cause twisting of the head and neck in domestic poultry and lead to paralysis. Plus, traffic in these birds is emptying Guyanese forests of Tawatawa. A different but similar finch with an even more muscular syrinx has been extirpated from Guyana in the past 20 years. The Tawatawa is heading in a similar direction. So, even though finch singing battles in the park sound like more interesting entertainment to me than American Idol, I tip my hat to the customs official who spotted those curler bulges in Mackenzie's duds and wondered why his jacket was going zreet, zreet, zreet. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, if you want to tell me how I'm doing, what I'm messing up and what's going on in your neck of the woods right in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. And remember to check out www.steeldealers.com, S-T-I-H-L dealers.com, to find a well-read, knowledgeable, super nice steel dealer 
near you to help you with all of your chainsaw trimmer and snipper needs for the summer and the upcoming hunting season. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.